When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody, disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. Greetings, constant listeners. It's Michael Monroeville Mall Rothman. So today we're unlocking, I guess you could call it a book episode, because technically it is a book, and it's a book that Stephen King released 35 years ago. It's called Nightmares in the Sky, Gargoyles, and Grotesques. Uh, it's a coffee table book, like in Seinfeld. Remember the whole coffee table book? That bit? Yeah, anyway. Well, King and F. Stop Fitzgerald put it together way, way back in 1988. And you know what? We, we missed it. <laughs> we, we, I guess, I guess the coffee table wasn't on our radar, but look, shit happens, but we did cover it because, uh, the Dan's, you know, them as uh, Dan Flieger and Dan Caffrey, they covered it in the Barrens way, way back in 2021. And, uh, you know, they, it's a great episode. They, they talk all about the impetus behind the project, uh, King's essay within, uh, the countless photos within, and they also stay on theme by talking about Stan Winston's 1972 telefilm, Gargoyles. Now, if you know Caffrey, you know that Caffrey loves a good old creature feature. He loves the monsters of the night, and Flieger loves rules when it comes to lore. So the two of them seem to be a perfect match for this. And uh, we thought this would be a nice little buffer, you know, when you unlock something, you get something, a nice little holiday treat. This, 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 uh, this month is the season of giving, right? Well, we're giving you this episode and oh my God, uh, in less than a week, we are giving you another book episode, our first of six tied to 112263. So these are these are good times. These are good times. Of course, if you enjoy an episode like this, you can get even more of them, even more book episodes actually over in the Barons, www.patreon.com slash the Barons, because we've got hours and hours of exclusive content. We haven't unlocked hundreds of hours, uh, maybe thousands of hours. I don't know. We'll have to do the math on that one. But We've got King commentaries for all your favorite movies. We've got uh, our in-depth archival series where we talk about uncollected works and uh, essays and everything under the King umbrella that we haven't covered already on the podcast. Uh, the Dan's have their own Dark Tower Detour series. We've got Lobstrosities. We, we've got a lot of stuff in there, okay? I mentioned book episodes, and we do have book episodes in there. We've got one for Holly. We've got one for Fairy Tale. We've got one for Billy Summers and also 
Gwendy's final task. So if you want to jump ahead on the path of the beam, you can uh, listen to us talk about those newer episodes. And we're going to keep doing that. We'll probably have a new one for You Like It Darker next year. And I'm sure a lot of people will get angry and say, why isn't this in the feed? And it will be in the feed. But the main feed is chronological. And, you know, we wanted to jump ahead for our, our, our lovely patrons. And they are lovely. And they all do gather around 24-7 on our Discord, which is also a part of our patrons uh exclusivities but anyway i'm rambling you want to get to gargoyles so start looking up at the sky uh hopefully they're not looking down at you and uh stay safe and we'll be seeing you over long days and pleasant nights my friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you but if you want to make love then i do too and i'll be right there behind you Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to the Losers Club, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. We are in for a treat today. It's a little bit of an unusual episode because we don't usually review coffee table books, but Stephen King, the horror master, saw fit to do it in 1988. Um, let me say first, this is Dan Gargoyle Flieger. Um, I couldn't really think of a good nickname, but I was watching Jurassic Park earlier. Dino DNA, so today I'm a gargoyle. And who am I joined by down there in Atlanta? Man, and I'm trying to think of a pun. Yeah, this book. I mean, there's only a few pages of King text in this book, so it's hard to it's hard to come up with a proper name. Um, I will say, <laughs> I am. <laughs> oh man, what's a what's like a stone that begins with D? I, I'm trying to think, diamond. Like, yeah, di- yeah. I'm yeah. I'm Dan Diamond Caffrey because Ooh, maybe if you polish a gargoyle, it will turn into a diamond or or something like that. It sounds like a gambler's name. Yeah, Diamond Dan the Dan. Diamond. Yeah, a wrestler or something. There's got to be. I, I I'm sure if I went through the book, or or if I went through the movie that we're going to talk about today too, or maybe I could have on the Disney show Gargoyle. I could, you know, I'm I'm Dan Disney's Gargoyles Caffrey. There we go. Nice save. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, well, like we were saying, so this is a little bit of an unusual episode because this is more of an essay from King. It's only about 35 pages long, and it accompanies uh, photos by F. Stop Fitzgerald. Um, who took pictures, about 100 pages so, of gargoyles all across America. And what we're doing is also pairing this with a the 1973 movie, made-for-TV movie, or 72? In 72, yeah. 72. The, yeah. Oh, it's a primetime Emmy Awards. It was in 1973 where it won some awards. But 1972, uh, where Cornell Wilde starred, <laughs> directed, wrote... In the made-for-TV classic Gargoyles, which gets mentioned Wait, no. quite a few times in the book. So I had a question about this actually, because mm-hmm. King said that's what King says. He says, "Oh, he starred, directed in it, and wrote it." But I looked it up. I think he only starred in this one. He he like there were other movies that he he did do that with, but I wasn't. I was like kind of confused on that. I didn't know if King was getting his facts wrong or if maybe just not all the information was was on the internet. I don't know though. I like because on Wikipedia, I think it says it was. Here, I'm gonna look this up real quick just to make sure I'm not. I'm not. Uh, Wikipedia, they answer. just make up anything. Yeah, just like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I remember when that used to be like a cliche. Yeah, like, no, written I know. by no, people. It's, it's like unlike encyclopedias. But. I was gonna say too. It's a, yeah, Wikipedia is a pretty re- reputable source now. Yeah, let me just just double check. Yeah, because on on Wikipedia, it says screenplay by Stephen Carp and Eleanor Carp. 
directed by Bill Norton and starring Cornell Wilde. But then I looked up he, and Cornell Wilde was like a, a famous made for TV director in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Choose your own adventure, we'll, I guess. We'll get into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ah, yes. Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, you can... I can change it. You can change it, exactly. But let's start with the book, first of all. So just, I guess, I'll ask you because I know you have the actual hard copy of the book. When did you get it? What edition is it? So the, uh, this is the first edition, baby, as I do. Here, I'll, I'll show it on Zoom. Not that you can't see this at home, folks, but trust that I'm showing my good friend Dan Flieger what this book looks like. So I actually uh, got this at a yard sale a probably about a decade ago, a theater company that I was affiliated with in Chicago was having a sale because they were moving spaces. And my friend who runs it, Adam Webster, he had a ton of Stephen King books for sale, first editions like it. And I think I say Lissy's story, a few other ones. And then he had this and he was like, oh, do you want this one too? And I never heard of it before, but I figured it was Stephen King. Okay, I, I would take it. I would wager to say most King fans haven't heard of it. It's strange because it's classified as a King book, but like you said, it's more of a photo coffee table book with an introductory essay about gargoyles. And honestly, I didn't read, read it. I mean, I'd always flip through it as you do with coffee table books. I didn't read, read it in full until we knew we were going to record this. So this, I'm, I'm still a little fresh with the material, but what about you? Uh, what, what was your first experience with it? So this actually, I've been going through the Stephen King checklist and trying to get uh, current with all the books. So this was the one I stumbled upon in 1988. And said, you know what? I need to actually go ahead and check this out. I know a few of my friends have the actual coffee table edition. Um, I found a different edition. Let's leave it at that. Um, but apparently they only released, they published 250,000. And I think they only sold about 100,000 of them initially, um, which is kind of interesting. And then the more I was reading too. So this was in 1988. This was the only book that Stephen King had published. Um, apparently there was the Gunslinger Trade Edition came out, but this was the only book you know, new book that had come out that year in 1988. The only new King material. So is, uh, is mine worth a bunch of money then you think? Uh, that's a good question. It's definitely a collector's item because I don't know how popular it is. And I can't imagine that many other Stephen King books only have 250,000 printed editions. Yeah, that's. I was just reading today about uh, there was that coffee table book Madonna did, which is called Sex. Apparently it's oh, really uh, rare. Vanilla Ice. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, and so maybe the, I mean, Naomi Campbell, all these people. So maybe this is like the Madonna sex of Stephen King books that I, that I have right here in my hand. <laughs> I just always think of Seinfeld where Kramer makes the coffee table book that becomes a coffee table. Oh, yeah, like unfolds with little legs, right? And, and yeah. uh, he goes on to talk show for it. That, he goes I think on Regis and Kathy Lee. Yeah. I think that's how I found out what a coffee table book was. I, I don't think I knew what it was before that. Yeah, I've always thought that was a weird term because I, I have a few coffee table books, but... I I hate having clutter on my table. When I was going to say most, my grandmother has some New Jersey history books on, on her various coffee tables and then she's a really good decorator. So it looks good. But for the most part, yeah, I don't think any of my friends have actual books on their tables. Yeah. That's where you eat. You don't, you don't want that cluttering up. You want a bunch of gargoyles staring back at you. Yeah. I have the, uh, HR Giger Necronomicon, which is very disturbing. (laughs) And it's good to have on your, on your table for it. (laughs) Special guest, but, uh, but we should talk about the structure of this book. It's really an essay 
it, it's it's a little bit of I guess like a postmodern take from King because it's an essay about him being approached to write an intro for a book about gargoyles. So it's kind of feeding into itself and giving this sort of meta narrative of the process of him embracing being accepted to do something a little bit that's outside of his wheelhouse. What did you think about that? Yeah, it was interesting because right off the bat, he says, I'm not going to give a history lesson about gargoyles. I mean, there's all sorts. I mean, you could write, I'm sure there are entire books or theses written about the evolution of what a gargoyle is, how it plays into architecture. I'm sure there's some Renaissance business in there. Right. But yeah, he makes it, uh, he makes kind of his angle at the very beginning I'm just going to talk about this uh, from a standpoint of terror, from from why I chose to do this. And for him, it's he looked up in the, you know, when his friend talked about gargoyles, he looked up in the sky and saw and really saw them for the first time. Um, he says he says that, you know, we, as pedestrians, we don't look up a lot, which is very true. And he had never really noticed a lot of these gargoyles. I think it's on Madison Avenue. He's talking about New York specifically. And I, I, this is something I wanted to ask you, actually. So. He talks about being terrified by by them, which makes sense because it's Stephen King and it's horror. Do you think he laid on the terror a little thick, though? Like, I, I just pictured him riding around in a limo, just being petrified by these stone statues. And I don't know if I quite buy that. I like I like the writing a lot, but I was wondering, like, OK, how how scared was he really of, of this? What, what, what do you think about that? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It's it is. I think it's one of those things where he wasn't aware of how many gargoyles there actually are. And uh, one of the guys, Mark Glimsher, famously says something like, we don't see them, but they see us. So I think that concept maybe stuck in his craw of like, oh, that's a cool idea for a horror that, you know, yeah, so Stephen true, King yeah. toured around, you know, who knows how scared he actually was. <laughs> but I think he also, he'll kind of like tug on that thread, you know, pull the yarn off that sweater and see how far it'll take him. Totally. So I, yeah. I think he, yes. I mean, and, and that's why I said, like, obviously, it's a, I think the writing is actually quite beautiful and how he talks about them being demons and staring down and all that. And I like what you said, too. About, I mean, I remember I would ride the ship, the L train in Chicago and around the loop. And there are actually there are some great pictures of Chicago here of gargoyles in Chicago. And every now and then I, I would look up on one of those stretches kind of between Chicago and Franklin and merchandise, Martin Quincy, where you're really surrounded by buildings. And every now and then I would look up and note and go, oh, I never noticed that building had a gargoyle before. And it was this sort of jolt of surprise. And yeah, I think you're right. You know, he's obviously amplifying that a little bit, I think. So so he can give people the willies as he's want to do. <laughs> so, yeah. so just like, get... Tabby, I need to come home. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just picture of like, I don't know, there's that old, that old uh, uh, Tim and Eric sketch uh, of that old man being afraid of all these creatures that don't exist, like a... a the bowel, which is a bat and an owl, and they just show him like having the the covers all the way up to his nose and trembling. I just picture Stephen King looking like that about gargoyles. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, but I mean, overall, yeah, I agree that I do really like the conceit of the essay of okay, I'm not gonna, this isn't a history lesson, I'm just gonna give my very personal take on gargoyles. And I didn't know, I actually had no idea that he reveals this in the essay that the word gargoyle actually comes from gullet because I guess a true gargoyle has to have a water spout coming out of its mouth. They were um, used as essentially as, as fancy as cover-ups for uh, water gutters on big buildings. And I, I don't know, I think I could be wrong. I think a lot of the gargoyles that they, that F stop Fitzgerald ends up photographing for this. I think a lot of them technically aren't true gargoyles because they don't have the water spout, but that was interesting. I didn't know that was where the word came from or, or that that's what made them truly distinct as an architectural feature. Yeah, what was it? French for gullet, right? Is that? Yeah, I think it was French. I mean, yeah, yeah, for Gullah. It's um, yeah, and I they they're placed in the cornice, which is another word that I learned for architecture. Uh, the cornice is sort of like the molded edge 
of the oh, building. Oh yeah, and, like it's 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 yeah. almost like an ex, it almost looks like the top of a column extending all the way around a building, kind of. Yeah, um, like a it, it would, what, column or something. What's your experience? Because I actually liked gargoyles a lot growing up. I would uh, I, maybe you remember that there's some store in Golfview Square Mall that sold a bunch of like dorky fantasy stuff, you know, but you could buy gargoyle, like gargoyle bookends. Um, yeah, exactly what I was going to say. Bookends. For some reason, I always saw gargoyle bookends. Yeah, I think I could be wrong. Back when we had, uh, back when we, the Losers Club was based in like a, a sound studio in an office, I had uh, I had gargoyle bookends that when we moved to Austin, I actually just gave to to Rothman. And so I, he probably has them somewhere, but they were yeah, sort of I holding I still up. see them when I go to his place. Nice. Yeah. So they're holding. So, so a little, little losers club trivia uh many of our stephen king books are held up by these gargoyle bookends but i guess they technically wouldn't be gargoyles because they don't have the gullet but but i think when we hear gargoyle we think stone statue of some kind of demon or animal right i mean i think that's what yeah it's well i always i always thought it had to be by strict definition like a winged demon yeah but going through too. this book it seems like there's a lot that are more humanoid or like a bat with dragon wings. So it seems like the definition yeah. is a little looser than there's the like, there's somewhere there like thought. chimpanzees. I mean, I guess if they have that pipe coming out of their mouth, that's uh, you know, that's, that's what it means. Yeah. Were you into uh I mean, I think yeah, I know the answer because I've seen your childhood bedroom. That sounds creepy, but uh, what? Whoa. <laughs> what? Uh, you, you still did, see it? <laughs> yeah, yes, every every night. Did, did you have any uh, any gargoyle uh, collections or anything like that, or did you keep them in your room at all? Um, I never really had any straight up gargoyles, but my little brother watched the cartoon show. Um, oh yeah, Disney's Steve gargoyles and Frank and Steve. Yeah, they both watched it. So we actually had some of the action figures, and I didn't. I wasn't like a regular viewer, but I used to step in and watch it, and I think it was like. Keith David, who did the voice of the main guy. Yeah, Keith David. Um, I think I think Ed Asner did the voice of the old one. Um, actually, you know what? Little little uh, King's Dominion here. Uh, Bill Fagerback, who voices Tom Cullen, M.O. Moon, not voices. He plays Tom Cullen in the original Stan miniseries. He is the voice, I think, of oh gosh, what? There's Hudson, Lexington, Brooklyn, Bronx. Oh man, he's he was he was like the I he the like the like the chubby gargoyle. What uh, what was his name? Do you remember? He's like the chubby goofy one. Hmm. Uh, I'm not. Maybe I'm gonna, I'm gonna look this up. I hope I'm yeah. not getting this this wrong because that let's see. But he was on. Uh, I mean, he has like one of those huge IMDb pages too. So he's got. Okay, here we go. So he is. Oh man, am I am I totally wrong about this? I can't get this wrong because Gar. Cause I'm I'm pretty sure Bill Fagerback was was. Uh, was a voice. Wow, oh, man, this is going to drive me crazy now. It was, it was, it was Brooklyn, Lexington, Bronx. What a, they were all named after like, other than Goliath, they were all named after yeah, New York. Like parts of landmarks. New York, Hudson. Yeah. So I'm trying so it was, it was something like that. Broadway was his name. Broadway. Maybe I feel like that was maybe a was, uh, statue of Liberty. <laughs> Raised by the slice. Ozone <laughs> race raised by the slice. <laughs> like real, real Brooklyn pizza. Governor Cuomo. That was another one. I yeah. think. Um, anyway. it's, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, wait, here we go. Show. It's uh, we, we've got, we've got, yeah, I remember Brent Spiner was on it. Cole Meany, all this. Anyway, let's get, let's keep on moving on. I'm, I'm, I'll get to the bottom of this, but I'm pretty sure that is M O and that spells, uh, that spells gargoyles. I'm pretty sure. Uh, interesting. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
Well, speaking of people playing a role, now it's time for Zeros and Villains. I'm gonna have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, asshole! <laughs> Alright, this one's gonna be a little bit different because this is, you know, a non-fiction essay. But we do have some <laughs> characters that find their way in. And I guess, first of all, we should talk about... Well, actually, let's save Stephen King for last. Let's talk about first... Um, F. Stop Fitzgerald. How do you the feel about that nickname? And by the way, it was Broadway. It was Bill Fa- and Bill Fagerback who plays Tom Collins' voices Broadway on Gargoyles. Good, to, glad we got yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. What do you, what do you think about that nickname? Uh, it's a little little so, too cute by half. Yeah, it, obviously it's taken off F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, so I this guy was kind of hard to find information, but I found him on Facebook and was able to kind of backtrack. Um, so his Did real you name friend is him? no, I I reported him, but it's uh, <laughs> no, I poked him. His real name is Richard Minasali, and he was a he's from New York originally, um, but he started in San Francisco photographing like the punk rock scene. So I think the F stop just sort of became, you know, his alter ego. Yeah, that's um, kind of that's kind of a thing, right? Yeah, the punk, like, uh, you know, like whatever Johnny Rotten, Richard Hell, you know, that's kind of, kind of a thing. Yeah, well, the F stop like, uh, isn't very with punk rock, though. I, I, I just think of full stop, which sounds very grammatical to me. That's what I was thinking too. The whole stop, and I guess you know he's he's playing with that. It's just unusual. I don't see a lot of punks embracing like old authors. Um, but yeah, so he, I mean, he's been like you know in Rolling Stone, Spin, Village Voice, and he's had a few you know galleries go up. And that was kind of how I was able to find him was these old you know tribute galleries that he was doing to his punk rock days. Um, so per- according to him on his bio, they say that this book has eclipsed one hundred and eighty thousand in sales. So we're getting closer to that 250,000 complete being sold. So who knows? Maybe by now all 250,000 copies of this book have been sold. And maybe I'm in possession of uh, of one of the few. I'm just looking. I'm, I'm kind of jealous you found him on uh, on Facebook. I'm just looking them up on Instagram and Twitter and all that. There's actually a lot of people who use the handle or the name F. Stop Fitzgerald. So it's probably not one of not one of him. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I know it's just interesting. I, I, did you look at his his non gargoyle photos? Or were they pretty cool? Yeah, and like we you know we have a lot of friends, and I think we both done some concert photography. So it was you know it's it's good. It stands out as being a little bit above the normal just person with a camera that goes to a concert. But it was more cool, I guess, to see some of the people he was photographing, you know, especially in that scene at that time. So he was like, what, um, 70s, like CBGB era kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. And like, uh, you know, like I was, like pre-digital cameras, obviously, too. So I feel like there was way, way less photographers back then. Whereas now I feel like everyone with a camera identifies yeah. as a photographer. Um, so you, you see, he's like a skillful concert photographer and definitely made a great career out of this. And it's just sort of an unusual choice that he would stumble into, you know, from photographing people that move on stage to stone creatures that are still alive, you know? Yeah. When I, I, I will say too, I mean, I know, I know I made fun of his name. It was all in good fun, but I do, I like how close up these pictures are too. I feel like usually when I see gargoyle, not that I look at gargoyle photographs all the time, but I feel like it, there's usually such, an effort made to capture the building with it, you know, because usually the building is, is more famous than the gargoyle, obviously. But I really like with his that he he captures them up close to the point that they really do look like monsters. Like, for instance, if you're uh, if you're reading the I guess the first edition on page six, there's this close up of one. It looks almost like a fish mouth or, or maybe even a Chinese dragon. But he he photographs so close up to it. It just looks like it's a a a creature that exists independently of the building. Um, see, I was actually, a, I was a really big fan of the photographs themselves. I thought they were very evocative. 
Yeah, and I saw in the coffee table book, they're actually you can fold it out. They have certain pages. Yeah, like there's centerfold. a. Let's see what page that's on. It's a, yeah, there's this big centerfold one. You get the you get the nice sound of the pages turning. Everyone, that's how you know I'm not I'm not fucking with you. Yeah, there's a yeah they're in the middle. It's it's kind of cool. They're all they're more the flat gargoyle faces. So they're not the one. They're not like the demons leaning off the building. They're more just the ones that have the faces embedded into it. And uh, yeah, it's just a series of them. They almost look like Greek tragedy masks. Uh, and then a couple of the the outside of the gatefold is in color. And then when you open it, it's black and white. I mean, and it really, I mean, it totally makes sense why this is a coffee table book, right? Just because of it, it is so reliant on photography and the visuals really are are just quite lovely to look at. Did you find them to be especially scary or, or were you more just like, oh, these are cool? Uh, so the ones I thought were cool, I actually marked down and we'll share at the end some of our favorites. Yeah. But the ones that are scary to me are the ones that are kind of crumbly. Um, they yeah. remind me of, was it, is it the Dwarf King in uh, Return to oh, Oz? Oh, the Gnome King in Return Gnome of King, Oz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When, when he's sort of acquiring his human body, but he's not quite there. It's just sort of this rocky, rugged, I don't know, texture that really disturbed me. Yeah. Um, I, so the ones that scared me were not my favorite, but the more like the ugly ones. Yeah, they, I rewatched that movie actually this past uh, Thanksgiving at my parents' house. It's and uh, yeah, it holds up really, really well. The Wheelers and I mean, I, I, honestly, I feel like we should do an episode on that someday, just because it's so. It, it, that actually feels like a truly frightening kids movie. Oh yeah, no, I remember watching that with you once in college, just for fun, randomly. But yeah, I love it. Yeah, but yeah, no, that's a really good comparison. It really does look like the the Gnome King. Well, I think the Gnome King's supposed to be made of limestone or something like that. So the, he's you know he's of a similar material as these gargoyles would be. Yeah. And let's talk about um, another character in this book, Mark Glimpshire. So I had to do some research on him. He comes across as more of a literary agent in this book, mm -hmm. but he's actually a very famous art dealer. And that would make sense why he was, you know, had an office on Madison Avenue. And I was looking up like he just made some $20 million sale at Art Basel. And, oh, like recently? Or Art Basel. Yeah. In Basel, Miami. right? I only know Basil. that from I always rap. say Basel, but I, I only know it from rap songs. Like, like I didn't even. Art Basel is like a. What is it like a convention? It's like the it's South like by Southwest of art dealing, or I don't. I it's remember they sold like a banana tape to the wall, and like yeah. I, I love like provocative art, and I think it's funny when people pay a lot for something like that. You Didn't know, someone eat like that the, banana? That was the thing, right? Yeah, like, and so I feel like that's the artist fun. making a point, also of like kind of pointing out like the data absurdity of some yeah. of this stuff. But well, none of it's really permanent, right? Like in a way, it's kind of absurd to put that much hey, value. No, on no it. art is permanent, man. Yeah. If you think about it, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mona Lisa's ain't going to last forever. Yeah. Um, but Mark Glimpshire, so he kind of is the one that recruits Stephen King and there's some literary agents, but he has a meeting and you could tell Stephen King's not too sure if this is the project for him. And Mark Glimpshire delivers that line where he says, uh, but Hey, well, you'll notice that they're always looking down. His smile was different this time. He thought, and I think the tiniest bit uncomfortable. We don't see them, he said, but they see us. <laughs> and that's the line that kind of drew Stephen King and like locked him into this project. So he, so if this were a Stephen King fiction book, he would be responsible for the inciting incident. Like he's the one who, uh, you know, this is that he, he it's equivalent of uh, to sending Ben Mears back to the Marston house, you know, to to yes. write or something like that. Yeah, it's um this would not be possible this whole story without Glimcher. I, I and I always wonder, and don't get me wrong, I. I I prefer the version that Stephen King lays out. But you always wonder, like, oh, did he really say that? Like, did, did the conversation happen exactly like that? I, I prefer to think it did, but I would, you know, sometimes that dialogue's a little too, uh, a little too neat. Like, I'm trying to think if I've ever had some kind of one-liner in my life that has been that, that witty and clean. But hey, either, either way, it, it makes for good storytelling. 
Yeah, no, I, I wonder as well, but sometimes when you have people that are like this high in society and art dealer, you know, millionaire, mm-hmm. you do wonder if maybe they have that. It's almost like the great car salesman that's just like, see that? I just sold that. You know, like, you don't even <laughs> yeah. know it, but I just sold you that car. And you're like, ooh, like, <laughs> intriguing. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's got to be a, re- yeah, he's got to be a pretty smart, savvy guy. And he made, he, he knew, he knew it would get uh, old Uncle Steve to, <laughs> to start writing Rube, about this. Rube visiting from Maine. And, yeah. you know, Stephen King mentions in this that he, it's about, I think, my guess about seven hour drive from Maine to New York city, but King said he would go periodically throughout the year. Every few yeah. Months. That sounds right. Wow. Cause uh, I, I was just at my parents' place this past weekend and they're in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. And I saw a sign for Bangor, Pennsylvania, like B A N G O R. And I was jokingly saying this, my wife Susan that oh, I wonder if that's for Maine. And then I'm like, wait, how far is Maine from here? And, and they're, they're near New York city. And I think it was like seven and a half hours from them. So seven hours sounds right. Yeah. It's about 600 miles or so, yeah. but Anyway, um, but so yeah, so he would be coming to town and periodically, you know, imagine meeting with his publishers, you know, literary agents, movie agents, all those kind of things. I, you know, I don't imagine tons of people are flying out to Maine. It's probably just a lot easier to take a long weekend and go to the Big Apple. Yeah, and from where I, I from what he says in his own writing, I think he's big on road trips by himself. You, you know, taking the hog out or uh, taking a <laughs> taking. Oh his, yeah, just listen to some rock and roll and yeah, I yeah, yeah. Blair, Blair some but. Chuck Berry and drive to the city. I actually do. I, it's funny because the essay obviously is about gargoyles and and you know he talks about why they're horrific to him, which we've already gone over. But it, it does actually feel like a. Um, fish out of water story a little bit, even though Stephen King has been to New York a bunch of times by this point, I think because he was just raised working class and in a more rural environment, it, it does feel like, Oh, a country boy coming to the big city and getting scared by gargoyles, which, which makes the essay really interesting. I think that's a much more interesting framing device than if he was some Renaissance scholar talking about their architectural features and where those all come from. Yeah, no, I, I you know the type and we should mention like I'm from long Island originally Caffrey's from Jersey. So we grew up pretty close to New York city. So we've spent a lot of time there and have a lot of family there. But even now, you know, having not lived there in a long time, when I, you know, get off the plane, sometimes there's that overwhelming sense of like, Oh man, I don't <laughs> and over my head a little bit. Oh, here, to- oh dude. Yeah. We, um, we, the reason I was up North is for a, a wedding in New York city. Um, now that we're all vaccinated and my, my friend who got, was getting married, picked us up at my sister's house in New Jersey. And, you know, I consider myself a, a pretty decent driver and I don't get too intimidated, but we, he drove us from Jersey, like through the Lincoln tunnel into Manhattan and then into Brooklyn. And I kept thinking the whole time, Oh, I don't know if I could do what he's doing. And he actually, he accidentally turned, he was in the right turn only lane on like uh, I want to say sixth Avenue or something. And so he actually had to turn back into the Lincoln tunnel by accident. So we went to the Lincoln tunnel three times trying to get into the city. And it just like, it, it, and it does feel like this different beast almost. And even, I mean, you know, we've both lived in Chicago or you live still live in Chicago, but we've both spent a lot of time in Chicago and even Chicago feeling like this big, sometimes menacing, wonderful city. I think New York is just that times a thousand, even though, even though Chicago is like what the third biggest city in the U S New York just feels so much bigger and more towering, um, which maybe also feeds into the, the, the fear factor of the gargoyles and looking up at them. Um, And to be fair, even though we were kind of making fun of him a minute ago, I've never walked down New York streets or Chicago streets and looked up to look for gargoyles other than when I was on the train. So for all I know, maybe it is really, really freaky if you're walking down Madison Avenue and you look up and see some impish monkey god with wings staring down at you. Yeah, and I guess that we should talk then um, about Mr. Stephen King, who I guess would be the main character of this essay. The hero of the story. The hero, the, hero, the protagonist, the hero, the one we're rooting for in this essay. And 
basically, so he's still reticent about whether he wants to take this project on or not. He doesn't really know, as someone who's not super familiar with gargoyles, what he can bring to the table. Um, but what he does is, after uh, Glimcher mentions that they're always there looking down on us, he goes and he starts walking down the street and just keeps, you know, is looking up. And he starts counting and noticing how many gargoyles he actually passes on the way back to his hotel. And then the next day, he actually rents a limo. And he gets a scrap of paper and he starts checking every time he sees a gargoyle. And I think he gets to over 100 um, on the limo trip. Yeah, right? he exceeds a lot of them. I mean, they really are everywhere once you start looking for them. Um, I, I even think, too, it's funny because they're not in the book, but at the Harold Washington Library in Chicago, they have some. They actually have owls at the top of the building, too, which I, I don't know if those are technically gargoyles. But I do. You watch that show Invincible, right? The superhero show. Yeah, I have. I've only read the comic, but. So I don't know if this line is in the show or not, but they talk a lot about how there's like villains who are able to sneak up on people because they're flying. And it's, it's as simple as people never look up. It's what Stephen King says. Right. So I don't know if they say that in the show. But yeah, that's what I kept thinking of. I will say the Harold Washington Library also has these light fixtures that look like the mask of Sauron, which <laughs> oh, yeah. I love every time. It's a, it's a big Chicago uh, library. The train goes right by it, but it's scary. It's kind of kind of like gothic. That's a really good uh, you know, point. I never th- you're, you're talking about the kind of um, I always thought they look like lanterns that are w- but the, where the uh, f- the metal frame is bent outward because it's like sharp yeah. almost. But you're right. It totally yeah. does look like the They're kind of like the ring wraith, like some of the, a little bit like that. Like yeah, like the armor. way their arm, the the way their uh, the armor on their gauntlets look like the kind of bent silver. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, I'm gonna, and spikes. That's totally true. I'm going to now that now I'm going to only see that when I look at that. The the mask of Sauron. Oh, yeah, it's you can't miss it. It's it's awesome. But um. Uh, but, but so Steven, so he's, you know, he goes down the street and he basically is like, wow, there are a ton. And then he meets up with his friend, Jerry, uh, Jerry in quotes, because he doesn't want to reveal the actual name of his close friend, because he says, you know, you don't have many that you've known your whole life. And Jerry's one of them. Um, so you get the impression that, you know, Jerry's kind of a sounding board that he maybe bounces ideas off of. And, you know, he says Jerry's not from New York originally, but even the fact that Jerry is a transplant and has only been there for a little while as soon as he mentions gargoyles, Jerry's like, oh, yeah, you got to go down this street, go down that street. And he starts pointing out all these gargoyles that most people just would never think about. What, what if Jerry's I know he's trying to keep him anonymous and stuff. What if Jerry's just like George Romero or something? <laughs> Someone like super famous. Oh, yeah. Or like Jerry Seinfeld. He's like, Steven. <laughs> yeah, he's one of those. St- no you got to get the gargoyles. Where the, I know we talked about Kramer in the coffee book. But where you, I feel like, you know, Seinfeld better than I did. Was there ever any Stephen King overlap on uh, on Seinfeld? Oh, that's a good question. Or did they ever like reference them. him, you know? I've been rewatching him during quarantine, but I don't know that there's a Stephen King. There's not too many horror references. There's a lot of drama movie references with like Rochelle, Rochelle, a woman's erotic journey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, there's Schindler's List is in the movie or in the show, but I don't know that there's been a lot of Stephen King references, which is kind of surprising because they reference a lot of pop culture in Seinfeld. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say because I feel like, you know, they reference Superman a lot. And they, I mean, they, they reference like, you know, Kenny Rogers roasters, all these things. I feel like Stephen King has to come up at, at some point. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. With Jerry, yeah, I kept wondering if Jerry was like a famous person or, or just someone who he's known from New York for a long time. I think it's probably one of his buddies from, you know, school or back in the day. I, he might have mentioned even in the story how they know each other. But just, you know, a lifelong friend, someone that is not going to buy into the Stephen King hoopla and, you know, still see him as just Stevie. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> old, old Stevie. I, I always call him Uncle Steve. I don't know if he ever refers to himself as that, but that's what I always say. I think I always like the term. I think that's a term of respect for like an older uncle. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, or just yeah, an old storyteller. That's that's why. Like I, think I just that. found out recently too. I was watching Jeopardy, and Tijuana is actually Aunt Juan. 
or Aunt Jane in Spanish. I never thought about that. Oh, tia. really? Oh, I guess that would yeah. be. Oh, yeah. Tia, yeah. Tia Juana. That makes that makes total sense. Oh, that's, yeah. that's super so, interesting. So all the Tios and Tios out there, we love you. Um, well, yeah, yeah, no, totally. When yeah, my, my niece's name is Jane. So she's like the opposite of an aunt. She's my niece. But yeah, that's it. Yeah. Tia, Tia Juana. That's, that's super interesting. Something we should, I mean, we'll, and we'll go into depth in it a little bit. But he does. So we mentioned this 1972 movie Gargoyles, which is essentially kind of a Saturday afternoon made for TV cheap horror movie from the 70s. And he actually talks about that informing his decision to finally write about the book and informing the horror of the gargoyles. Um, specifically his son, it's, it, it's Joe, right? It's Joe, Joe Hill. He's referring yeah, to Joe Hill. So, so son, Joe Hill is um, obsessed with this movie as a little kid and Stephen King kind of makes fun of the movie and talks about it being corny a little bit, but then he also talks about um, a couple of really iconic scenes in the movie that actually do managed to strike fear in his heart and he keeps coming back to that and that's what also plays a big part in eventually um, moving him to write about gargoyles like i said we'll yeah. get to the movie you know, i think that's a good time to kick into it because we've covered all Let's the characters don't worry mom i know all about cannibalism i saw it on tv see it's okay you saw it on the television you know like we said there's a little unconventional uh this episode but we're going to talk about so this is the movie like he said, the made-for-TV film, which Dan and I both watched. Um, I know you've seen it before, but I watched it just in preparation. And it's you know it's kind of a low-budget, cheesy, as you'd imagine a made-for-TV horror movie would be. But there is something about it that does stand out as being very disturbing. The monsters, you know, the way they interact with the humans, it is definitely creepier than it deserves to be. Yeah. So what, when was the first time you saw this? I guess? I, saw, I saw this movie first when I was about seven, I think. Um, I remember my dad and I were in not probably like a Sam Goody or a Peaches or, you know, one of the stores that you would have in the mall back then, Camelot Music maybe. And he saw it on VHS and he was like, oh, this is this uh, pretty freaky movie from when I was a little, I mean, not a little kid. Well, no, I guess so. Yeah, my dad would have been 11 or 12, I think, when this movie came out. And he told me that Stan Winston had done the effects for it, who, of course, Stan Winston would go on to do um, Jurassic Park and Terminator 2, a, a gnome named Norm, <laughs> to name a few. Um, yeah, I think it did win a primetime Emmy for achievement in makeup. It did, actually. yeah. And so, it's, yeah, so it's funny because, of course, you know, by today's standards, um, you know, these are definitely people in gargoyle suits for sure. But at the same time, like you said, I and I, I don't mean to be a broken record because I feel like we talk about this a lot on this end Halloweenies, but there is something to be said about it not being CGI, right? About them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's suits. And if they're in the daylight a little bit too long, maybe they look kind of corny, but they are actually there. And if they're lit, right. It, it, it does just have a certain amount of horror about it. And it, it's something that the, the human actors can talk to, right. That can interact with. Um, mm -hmm. And the scene that Stephen King specifically references is so the, we should back up a little bit. The plot of the movie is essentially that it's, it's fine. There's this opening narration that has all these uh, just over over like paintings of gargoyles, essentially saying this narrative that um, gargoyles were essentially Satan's Satan's little helpers uh, in, the, in the battle between heaven and hell, which I don't know if the, I don't know if the movie made that up or if that has any relation to what gargoyles actually are from an architectural standpoint. Um, but they sided with the devil and that he cast them on earth to rule. But of course, uh, man has wiped them out time and time again. So the central uh, central plot of the movie is that uh, this father and his daughter are going on this exhibition and is it New Mexico? It takes place in, right? Am I, am I right on that? Yes. So they're, they're in New Mexico and he's, he writes about like statues and just fantastical beings in architecture. 
and they find that they get introduced to a skeleton that's been dug up by this crazy local guy and they view it as evidence that okay maybe gargoyles actually still exist here they don't even go into really that their stone creatures come to life it's more like the stone creatures are imitations of what of what these monsters are and what they're trying to do for the whole movie is just um give birth so that their their race can replenish and the scene that stephen king talks about specifically as being scary is um at the end of the movie we see little baby gargoyles hatch out of these giant eggs and he talks about or uh, joe hill wanting to watch that over and over and over again and stephen king actually being kind of freaked out by it and i'm I'm guessing they use little kids or something but the makeup effects are pretty good there they're like slimy and they have these little wings and everything like that what what did you think about that scene specifically oh yeah no it definitely bothered me as well um i I was saying it's weird because i watched mandy over the weekend oh yeah yeah. this movie actually has some root that reminds me of mandy um just with like the weird bikers that nicholas cage is confronting and then you see like these weird uh, costumed gargoyles that the character in this is having to deal with. Doctor, yeah, Foley. there's al- there's also too because from I've only seen Mandy once, but from what I remember, there's a lot of slow motion too, right? That like yeah. there aren't a lot of the action scenes very drawn out, and gargoyles yeah. does this as well. And I, th- I honestly I think for gargoyles, they kind of put it in shutter speed just because it it looks a little better at night, you know, like it, they can kind of yeah. get away with how it, they. And look. I also read that they filmed this entire movie with only one camera. Oh really? Oh, that's It's kind funny. of funny. Cause like, you know, it's, you know, we've made movies with one camera before as like indie, you know, amateur <laughs> like high schoolers. Yeah. Yeah. But not for major TV film. Um, and we should say, so Cornell Wilde, who plays the main character, he's, he's actually the dad, kind of yeah. a famous. Um, yeah. It's, he's there with his daughter, which in the beginning I thought it might've been like a professor with his, you know, apprentice, but I was actually happy to see that it was just his daughter. Um, but he, he's a noted director. He actually made this movie, wrote, directed, and started in 1965 called The Naked Prey, which my dad made me watch when I was little. I just loved it. And it's essentially like um, 1800 South Africa. This group is going on safari. They offend these villagers. And the villagers, it's almost like a uh, green inferno or a cannibal holocaust. They start executing all the members of the safari and then they take Cornell West character and they strip him naked and they shoot an arrow and they say, run to that arrow. And as soon as you cross it, we're going to send a hunter. And then once that hunter crosses it, we're going to send another hunter. So they send about a dozen guys after him. So it's largely a movie with very little dialogue. It's just him running. You know, it's kind of like the most dangerous game or surviving the game. It's very good, though. It's it's very it has like a great payoff that. in the end. Yeah, there's yeah, a it, it's. There's a very specific aesthetic about the, you know, the Saturday afternoon movie. Um, and yeah, King talks about like. Yeah, there's some stiff acting and whatnot, maybe some corny music, but I feel like they do. I don't know. I, I like the grittiness of them a little bit. Like it looks a little cheap in a way that makes it feel somehow more authentic than what you would usually see on network TV today. What, what was that one called again? The the prey one? The Naked Prey. I'll have to watch that. Yeah, because he's naked the whole time and he's having to cross these. Yeah, these it's yeah. it's a very like they remember they kill this one guy. They dip him in clay mm-hmm. and then they let it harden and then they put him on a spit like rotisserie and just and then, like one guy, they tie him down to the ground on his stomach, but they tie his head back and they throw a cobra in front of him and just yeah. some very creative executions in that movie. Yeah. It does sound very, movie. very similar to a uh, cannibal. Holocaust. I mean, I'm sure it's not as graphic as cannibal Holocaust or anything, right? But yeah, but, but it was funny. So, in, and part of the essay that King gets into is just, again, showing this to his son and being like, you know, is this appropriate for him? And even knowing it's cheesy, the fact that his son does get scared, but still can't look away and keeps going back. And I think that's, you know, the idea of some of these gargoyles that we might kind of just pass them by and not even notice. But yeah. then when you take the time to actually sit down and 
think about them, you're, you're never going to be able to walk by a gargoyle without looking up at it again. And no, and yeah, getting a little creeped out. When, and especially too the the tied to the movie. I mean, the design the design of the creatures, even though when they move, sometimes it looks pretty rubbery or you can see the wrinkles. The design is really good. I mean, they're very reptilian. They have these beaks. They even have a flying scene at the end. Uh, Bernie Casey who's a famous black exploitation actor, I think a football player. He has to, well, I'm not going to spoil what he does, but he flies away at the end to say the least. And yeah, you can, the, the wings move very slow and it's probably just done with a rod or a rope or whatever, but still they, they figured out some way to do that, which is, which is really cool. And uh, you mentioned the biker gang too. Uh, yeah. You see a very young Scott Glenn in there who of course would, would go on, go on to play Pangborn later on in the King universe. Um, yeah. He plays kind of like a hunky biker who I, I do, I do, I do think it's a little corny. how The bikers just decide to help them out because the daughter's nice to them. And he ends up like sat well, one of them ends up sacrificing themselves at the end in a way that I was like, Oh wow, that's a, that's a pretty big move to make for, for these two people you just met. Hey, bikers get a bad rap, but yeah, yeah. They're just they're good always, guys. Yeah. They're yeah. yeah, but it, it's yeah misunderstood. It's Gargoyles is definitely worth checking out, though, and it's on Tubi if anyone wants to check it out. And also, too, there's just not much fiction made. I, I can't think of many fictional narratives about gargoyles. We, you know, we talk, mentioned the Disney show. Obviously, there's this movie. There is a gargoyle in one of the installments of uh, Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, which you know does have King ties to it, also. But the, mm-hmm. other than that, I can't really think of a ton of fiction where gargoyles you know play a big part so i just kind of like that it exists so yeah i mean it's like 70 minutes you know it's it's definitely worth seeking out on 2b and you know like king says that birth scene is really freaky i get really freaked out by the scene where uh the gargoyles invade the hotel room to try and get this skeleton yeah. of their dead brethren back um when, when the gargoyles are in the dark and they're not moving around too much they actually look uh, quite freaky yeah no and it's like uh, you can also watch this on youtube for free um yeah it's and I, it's funny because I it goes back to kind of King's argument. So I was trying to think of horror movies that have gargoyles, and a lot do, but they're just set decoration, right? They just yeah. kind of add to the mood. They're never the main focus. Yeah, they're just and like I in think, castles and things, right? And I think that's what goes to King's thing. Of like you may not even notice them, but they notice you. And looking back, you know, almost every horror movie period piece is going to have an old building with gargoyles on it. Yeah, no, exactly. And and uh, you know, what? I just thought one more example. Hey, tying back to Seinfeld again, because that's what we do on this podcast. Uh, yeah, Hunchback of Notre Dame, you see they're like the cartoon gargoyles. One of them is voiced by uh, Jason Alexander. Um, yeah, but like I said, they're not going to scare you so much. They're, they're more of the comic. Quasimodo! <laughs> Sorry to think Jason. <laughs> Just like, that's it. That's it, Quasi! You <laughs> <laughs> probably does say boom, something like boom, that. Boom, boom. Um, okay, and that brings us to the next section, which is misery. She, she died. She just slipped away. This is misery. These are just some of the parts we didn't like. And, I, you know, I don't think there's much here to critique overall. I, I enjoy this essay. I think it's worth checking out. It's a quick read. I guess my only thing is the way that it's sort of um, laid out within the book. It's literally the first 35, 40 pages are the essay, and then the rest is just pictures. And I wouldn't mind the essays being broken up, I guess, across different sections of the book so that there's always something to read. Because once you're done reading it, it's just looking at photos. Yeah, that's a I, good I think point. I would have slowed down maybe and appreciated photos more if there were some literary breaks 
you know, then a few pages of photos, then some literary breaks. That's a good point. I actually thought that's how it was going to be structured. You know, I'd like, much like the Madonna sex coffee table book, which uh, just has her quotes about sex uh, <laughs> interspersed throughout. No, but yeah, I really thought it was going to be, because you could, I think, take any bit of his writing and pepper it throughout and it would make sense. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, this is such a minor quibble and I just, I usually have this complaint about most King introductions or essays. I feel like he always goes out of his way to kind of take, critics down a peg or two now i'm not saying this because we're we are critics um you know we're all writers too so so it's not it's not like i'm like oh king king can't have anything bad to say about critics that's not fair it's more that he just always does it and i feel like he does this kind of self-deprecating thing where he acts like oh he's maybe not seen as as being academic or highbrow enough for critics which i i understand to an extent but also you know he's won like the o henry award by this point he's written um films or books that have been adapted into academy award winning films and so it's just funny i just noticed every time he has any kind of essay in the front of one of his books he always just like talks a little bit about like critics being almost like the plebeians of the artistic world if that makes sense like they don't quite get it i have a a great quote that yeah yeah, yeah, but he uh he says, we'll leave the questions of divinity for the critics, those Jesuits of the artistic sphere. That's what he we? says. Yeah, those <laughs> Jesuits. And, I, and again, I guess my problem, too, and I've talked about this on the podcast before. And hey, you know, Stephen, we, we love you, of course. But he always talks. Of, I feel like he looks down sometimes on analysis. Like he, you know, he famously clashed with Stanley Kubrick in The Shining and um I think someone, I think he said Stanley is a man who thinks too much and feels too little, which that's a valid criticism of Stanley Kubrick, of course. But then I think someone had the opposite criticism of Stephen King, where he's a man who feels too much and thinks too little. And I would argue that Stephen King actually is very analytical and he's super intelligent and does think out all of his stories in this really remarkable kind of way. But yeah, I feel like whenever he talks about critics, he it's almost like he doesn't like that they're trying to intellectualize something. Whereas I'm like, I understand you can definitely overanalyze something to where it doesn't become fun anymore or to the point where you misinterpret it. But I don't think there's anything wrong with intellectualizing any art. I mean, I think that's why I like absorbing art because I like to talk about it. I like to think about what it means. I like to analyze it, think about all the ways it could be interpreted, especially with Stephen King's works. I mean, that's why we have a podcast where we go four hours sometimes, right? And so, yeah, his the quote you just pulled about, oh, the, the Jesuits, like, oh, they're like, they're such assholes for wanting to think about things like God or whatever. I don't know. It just seems a little. Um, yeah, no, it, it's funny. Cause I, the most I know about Jesuits is Hunter S Thompson used to love debating them. Oh really? Um, and he's like, there's nothing more fun than debating a mean Jesuit. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like Jesuits very strict. Are, I mean, maybe he means it cause I guess Jesuits are like priests, right? Or are they, are they, it's its own religion, I yeah. believe. Uh, but it's, it's like a stricter, form of catholicism I, i'm not so, yeah it's just sure. so funny man I, and I, he, he i don't think he's done it in a while but i just feel like there's a stretch especially in the 80s and 90s where every time he has some kind of essay he always has some line about that about critics and honestly aside from my disagreeing with him about it i think it's it just also seems like a repetitive trick you know like he just always kind of does it so i get a little little tired yeah, of it. I, I think it's like with any if you get sick of hearing critiques of your stuff or that you're not a real whatever yeah. from critics you know, it's like celebrities that get sick from like paparazzi and yeah, yeah. people misinterpreting their words online so that when you get interviewed and, you know, celebrities like bitter of like, you know, all oh, these people online and I'm like, I'm just a fan. I don't follow that stuff, you know. Yeah, no, totally. But it's in it's front and center in their mind, whereas it may not be for most fans. So, you know, I don't I don't know that most Stephen King readers are going and reading the critiques of his stuff. Either, no, totally. But, you know, it's front and center in his mind sometimes. When he's and he's had a, a lot of critical success too. I mean, but to be fair, I mean, in the seventies, especially he was kind of looked at as 
being this one trick pony horror writer. And I actually think he's yeah, like, not that like at Harold, all. I think he's like Harold Bloom or something. Okay. Like, yeah, and Harold, but... Harold Bloom is, is does seem like a total asshole. I mean, I, I kind of, he seems like a genius as well, but also exactly. Asshole. Yeah. I, I mean, I kind of love Harold Bloom too, because he's, there's no one else quite like him and his, he goes so hard and is probably the, he, you know what? Harold Bloom probably is a, a Jesuit of the artistic, you know, yeah. like he, that, that, uh, that description probably does accurately apply to him. Um, he, he was like the most, you know, he's a professor at Yale. He's just, he's held up for anyone that doesn't, hasn't read his stuff, but he's like a very famous, like yeah. professorial, one of the most famous, like English literature critics. He, and he, it's always funny. He kind of knew it, you know, the way he behaved. It's always funny because his essays, you know, he's written about Stephen King and and uh, J.K. Rowling and who else, whoever else. And he he always writes about it like the fact that people like them or enjoy them. It's like the end of the world or something. He, he always writes like, oh, I'm lamenting. The, and it's just so funny. I'm like, dude, I, I don't think anyone has a problem with people liking popular literature except you. And, but, but like you said, he is kind of one of a kind, you know, and probably a little bit of a genius. Also probably a little bit of a troll, I think. Hell, he's got to be old by now too i right? don't know if he's alive i just remember he's a big cormac mccarthy fan i do I like cormac mccarthy yeah. um but no yeah actually harold bloom died um in 2019 so oh did he really i didn't know that yeah how old was rest he rest in peace uh sweet prince yeah 89 uh, i mean it's, like it's a, that's a good run it's pretty good i mean that's not exactly you know working in a coal mine your whole life you're reading books so it's like i think 89 <laughs> yeah. is a ripe old age you know oh another paper cut damn workman's comp <laughs> No, that's a good point. Yeah, it's like, I, yeah, I think I, I think somewhere is the truth is probably in the middle of what Harold Bloom thinks and and what Stephen King thinks. Yeah, that's a that's a great segue. Um, but yeah, so I think I, I think we covered. There's not a whole lot we didn't like in this. Yeah, no, it's overall not... for for what this is, I th- I think it's actually quite a wonderful essay, and I like I said, enjoy the photos. Should we talk? Should we talk about a minute? Maybe like what? Uh, do you have any individual gargoyles that you really enjoyed? I know you said you you sort of like the crumbling ones, but do any individual ones uh, stick out to you? Yeah, I think, why don't we segue that into the uh, cemetery? What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes, that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. Welcome to the cemetery. Again, this is going to be a little bit of a different episode, but I think we're going to talk now about some of the scarier, more disturbing, and downright favorite gargoyles that we saw. Um, Caffrey, would you like to go first or any gargoyles that stood out to you in the pictures? Absolutely. So I, I, apologies if I'm taking one of yours, but um, and like I said, there are a lot of gargoyles from Chicago, some of which I have recognized from just riding the train. You can see them. But my favorite one was if anyone's been to the Chicago theater, which has this very famous marquee, um, it's very elaborate and detailed. It's kind of red, blue, and yellow. Um, it, it lights up. It's you know, very famous. There, I didn't know this. There are tons of gargoyles almost around the border of the sign. And just because I've li- I lived in Chicago over a decade, I've gone in the Chicago theater a bunch. I've taken the train by it. I've walked by it. I've looked at the marquee hundreds, if not thousands of times. I never noticed the gargoyles there. And to King's point about you're not watching that, but they're watching you. Or I guess his his friend or his uh, the art dealer's point. Just seeing that those over the Chicago theater sign freaked me out because I had never noticed them before. It kind of remember reminds me of um you know in it where they're looking at the old photos and they notice that Pennywise is there for the first time. Um and, and the fact that I've seen these things so many times and just never 
they've never caught my attention. And I, <laughs> I Googled it just to make sure that it wasn't doctored and that there are indeed gargoyles um, surrounding the Chicago theater sign. And, and of course there were that did give me a little bit of a chill just because I hadn't seen it before. So that would be my personal favorite. I also like the monkey ones too. I just thought they were, they were fun, but what about you? Yeah, no, I, I actually noticed those uh, as well. Like I, I listed a lot of the Chicago ones. And again, I used to work right by the Chicago theater. That was my train stop on Lake that I got off on every day, which is right in front of the theater and just never noticed it. Um, you know, going back next time I'm there, I'm definitely going to, I was going to say, have you, have you picture. gone by there at all during the uh, pandemic or not? Um, no, I haven't really traveled downtown in a little while, which just, you know, it, th things are a little bit different, but I'm sure once I get going again, um, but I actually did notice, um, so the part of Chicago I live in, which is more of the neighborhood, uh, it, there are definitely some old buildings that have like, you know, the gargoyle effects in the corner. Um, those does, I have noticed. Does yours have one? You live in kind of a cool old apartment building? Um, yeah, my building's from 1910, but it's, it's pretty straightforward square yeah, yeah nothing, not, not quite nothing too exciting it's probably um, not but because i guess gargoyles are going to be reserved for really 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 tall buildings too so yeah next time I'm in, yeah, in it's, chicago it, it's an that. interesting thing too because um in, I, in college my uh roommate was an architecture major and mutual friend with dan caffrey our friend mike who's an architect um and he would talk about too how you know sometimes the designers can get a little bored and they just want to add a little touch so they'll you know i think historically there was a lot of that going on of you know, it's like when a chef is making the special at a restaurant, they put a little extra effort into garnishing it and making it fancy because it's like, oh, I don't always get the chance to do this. So I get the impression that some of the mason workers, the gargoyles were that for them. It was a little bit of a, oh, you know, hey, now I get to be a little <laughs> I love, fancy. I love the idea of just like, yeah, the mason worker who didn't design the building. He's like, I'm just going to throw a horn demon on this. And <laughs> it's going to be really yeah. cool. And it's funny too, because like in, in you've traveled to Europe outside the churches, they'll have these statues that are supposed to be like a vagrant or a homeless person it's like a hooded figure Ugh. and it's very scary but they're all over europe and eastern europe and when i was there i was just like wow this seems so out of place next to a church but then i'm like you know what i guess if gargoyles are adorning buildings and churches it, you almost have to have that little bit of scary with the sweetness you know yeah no, Sugar with yeah. The spice <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly um, one, one of my favorite gargoyles and i think it's page 110 it is it looks like a dragon that is being choked by a boa constrictor. Well, let me open this up. So I can't tell <laughs> if it's exactly if this is supposed to be like a serpentine dragon body or if it's a snake wrapping around it. But I think it's a really I almost, cool. I almost knocked over my wine glass. I was so scared. Let me see. Uh, OK. Oh, oh, that is cool. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, it almost looks like well, because there is a there is a gutter in this particular gargoyle's mouth. Yeah, It almost looks like the snake is is choking the water out of it. Yeah, I can't tell yeah, if that's its head like or not. Asian that's... feel like there's like an Asian aesthetic to that one. You know what? I I could be wrong. This might be the one I was talking about earlier on that looks like the fish or the Chinese dragon close up. I wonder if that's just a close up. But I, you know, the, something that's cool about this book is in the back is it lists where all the locations are. So I can uh, I, I'll look once we're off the off the phone just to see if that's true. There's also around that page one eighteen and one nineteen. There's one that's an angel, and its mouth is opened to a, a kind of inhuman size i'm guessing that's where the water is it looks like it's singing or shouting but just its mouth being so wide is freaking then right next to it, there's like a looks like a demon with a dagger in its head but it's making a funny face I, I yeah i think that i like the ones that have these really active things going on similar to the snake yeah. one you just pointed out because i would put on, on page 88 mm -hmm. um this one looks almost like an art deco it looks like a human that has like a veiled face it, it reminds oh, me of cool. something that would be in like that movie like what cosmopolitan or oh metropolis it, it, 
Mario Metropolis, yeah. yeah. I'm confusing it with the comic. But yeah, it has like this weird, like, I don't know. It's it's like a modern human, but with like an ancient, I don't That's, know, like Gustav Klimt. You mentioned H.R. Geiger face. before. It's almost something that looks like it could be in that, too. I'm trying to think. Oh, yeah. There, there were a lot of, because uh, I was thinking a lot about Geiger, and I, I think there's something that Geiger captures in a lot of his sculptures, the sort of pained expression. Yeah, and I think no, that's yeah. what makes these very scary. Is a lot of them, they look like they're screaming, or, you know, you think of like when Medusa's cave, where these people are sort of caught in this moment of agony. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes some of these so scary. <laughs> there is a, there is one. It almost looks like a, uh, like a little, like a little possum or, or some little marsupial rodent creature uh, who, who's clutching a pine cone. It's like the one time there's like a really cute little gargoyle in there too. So I like that we get a little bit of that mixture. And then I'll, I'll do one more um, that I find very funny. Um, and it is on page 95. Let me see. And I can't tell if this is like a soldier or a messenger, but it looks like it's wearing a fireman's hat. Um, and it just was cracking me up. If any of, like I said, constant listeners, you're getting to hear the, the effects of me turning the page. So, when you, yeah. Oh, that is really and cool. It, yeah. And, but it looks like it has a 31 on its cap. And it's yeah. Like I can't tell if that's a, it could be a, it could be a fire helmet or it could be almost like a Because it yeah, looks like soldiers. he has a hose in his left hand too. Huh. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it is a fire. Yeah. I think you're right. It's a fire uh, for a fire station. It looks like because the hose and the, the helmet, it's probably. Yeah, over a firehouse protecting or something. And that's what's interesting, because like I said, I, I really do think of gargoyles more as being winged creatures. But I think the only um, criteria really is that they have to be made of stone on a building and have a, uh, yeah, have a have a uh, pipe coming out of its gullet. Um, oh, and that little marsupial one is on page 62. Yeah, it's a little cute guy. He's just, he's hanging onto a pine cone. Um, yeah, it looks, I think it's yeah. a, it looks like a possum or something like that. Or maybe it's just supposed to be some mythological creature. Yeah. That's it's 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 a cute guy, but uh, <laughs> yeah, he's a cute, cute little guy. <laughs> so, any any others that you want to call out, or are we ready to move? No, I think on that's to... good. Yeah, let's let's go on to the next section. All right. Well, the next section it's not going to be long, but we need to cover it. It's King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. Welcome to King's Dominion. This is uh, references to other King works. Don't think there's too many here, uh, but Dan did notice one earlier. Yeah, but you know we have we have obviously. Well, it's funny. This one probably doesn't even count. I was gonna say, okay, well, there's the Disney show Gargoyles, which has Bill Fager back, who voiced Tom Collin, but that's not really connected to this book at all. But um, you know, Scott, yeah, Scott Glenn, obviously, um, you know, playing Sh- Sheriff Alan Pangborn in the Castle Rock miniseries. You know, you could count that Tales from the Dark Side one, maybe just because. One of those tales is, is inspired by Stephen King's story, but I, and there's a gargoyle in it, but yeah, there's nothing like, I don't even know. I could, you know, I didn't even check for this. Does he even mention any of his other books in the opening? I don't think he does. I, I don't think he does either. No, I was, I was really searching because yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I love trying to connect him to the dark tower any way I can, even if I have to do backflips to do it, but I could not do it on this one. Yeah. And I was trying to think too, if, if any of his other books have, um, have gargoyles in them like as uh you know like in in it he never pennywise never turns into a gargoyle or anything like that um yes yeah, so i didn't have much i mean really the the scott, scott glenn being in the gargoyles movie that stephen king talks about in the introduction that's pretty much all i could think of i mean the stan winston did the effects on that movie and we were tra- this came up the other day we were trying to think of if stan winston had ever worked on a stephen king film i don't think he has i hope why I, I feel like a listener is going to point out that we're totally wrong about this or that, uh, or yeah, or that there's some big glaring error that we missed, but yeah, I don't, I don't think so. So yeah, I think it's just going to be a pretty, uh, a pretty short 
category as king's dominion tends to be i'm trying to was there any uh and mac always likes to call it room 237 where he has some really far-fetched <laughs> theory about how no. something could connect but i really could no, I, uh, I i usually do but uh just one thing on the stan winston there's a fun fact that i didn't get to mention but so there actually was some controversy when he was doing the makeup mm-hmm. um because i guess at the time he was sort of the third man the totem pole he wasn't exactly the lead oh so he wasn't even heading it up yeah so but at the time i guess they like sort of fought for his name to be on there and i guess when the emmy was given out he's the one who they said took it home but he didn't necessarily feel that he had contributed in the way that they tried to cast him in later years and i guess when this came out on dvd or vhs stan winston's name was prominently featured in letters because he's oh yeah you know one of the only famous (laughs) i think i want to say that the VHS I had, it had a big blown up image of the female gargoyles, the, the matriarch gargoyles head. I think it did say Stan Winston's gargoyles or something like that. Um, yeah, I'm just looking at this Tales from the Dark Side movie. So that has an adaptation of The Cat from Hell in it, which is by Stephen King. But the gar- the story that the gargoyle is in, I think, is called Lover's Vow, and that's by Michael McDowell. But I mean, that's the only, the only King adjacent uh, property I can think of that has a gargoyle. So yeah, just not not a ton in, in, in here. Um, I mean, and let's be real that the effects, I mean, the effects are a big selling point of Gargoyle. So I, I understand why they want to capitalize a little bit on old Stan Winston. Yeah. And I, and I think, too, it's just this book is more of a other than like on writing. It's just kind of a peer inside uh, what the thought process is for Stephen King accepting a project, how he approaches it. Yeah. And when know, it, this one, how he turns that into the narrative itself. And he has that, you know, uh, he has these kind of anomaly projects in his career. You know, some of the essays he's done, the on writing book, this, I, I, and I like that that's sprinkled throughout his career as primarily a horror writer. Um, and I just think it's good to, I, I think it's good to tackle a diversity of projects. And Stephen King certainly has done that as he's gotten older. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Okay, and I guess that brings us to our final section, which is final thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. (laughs) Okay, I'll be right there. You said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Welcome to Final Thoughts, all you gargoyles. I'm realizing now that the, my intro, when I said gargoyles, it's from the God Warrior, if you remember. What's the God Warrior? It was a viral video of like this spouse swap reality show. <laughs> and there's this very religious woman, and they swapped her with like a house of like pagans. And when she went back to her family, she's like, there were gargoyles, demons. She's like, <laughs> oh, no. I needed prayer. I, I have seen that episode. I remember the religious woman coming back. I don't, that's She says gargoyles. Yeah, I'll have like, to rewatch that. Give clip. it up for God. I'm a God warrior. She's like, I needed <laughs> prayer. Like Mama, I did pray for you. You did come to my mind. <laughs> but yeah, she says gargoyles. Um, I'm about to look that so, up. So these are our final thoughts on this book, which, you know, I, I guess I'll go first and kick it off. Um, you know, it's an unconventional book, but I like when people take on different projects. I had a good time reading this. It's not a topic I thought a lot about, but I will be thinking about going forward. Um, you know, it, it, it just, it, it felt like uh, the letter to the constant reader at the beginning or end of a Stephen King book, the way he kind of spoke in this like one-on-one sense and gave you some insight into what he was thinking about. Uh, I thought the pictures were great. Very scary. You know, F-Stop Fitzgerald did a good job. I'd, I'd actually be interested in checking out some more of his stuff. Um, as I mentioned, I looked at some of his punk rock stuff, but I wonder if there's more still lifes that he captures because he does a really good job. And uh, yeah, if you live in a big city or near churches, I, I think it's worth looking up sometimes and noticing the things that are looking down. You don't always notice these, but they are there and they are watching. 
Uh, I, I, for one, will get a stiff neck because I think I'll be looking up more <laughs> as I go down the streets. So um, for those reasons, I give this four bright red Pennywise cloud noses. I think I'm also going to go with four bright red Pennywise clown noses. I, like I said, I mean, aside from that little critic jab and uh, maybe the structure of the book a little bit where we wanted to see some text accompanying the pictures, I, I can't really complain about anything in this. In this, I think it does exactly what it sets out to do. It has some really, really evocative photos accompanied by a, another great essay by Stephen King. And to what you just said, I'm definitely going to look up a little bit more once I'm walking by buildings that might have this. That being said, you know, I do I want to give it the same rating that I give it? <laughs> you know, I'd probably not just because it's I, I I hate I know this is the most pretentious sounding phrase, but uh, you know, it's like minor king a little bit. <laughs> um, okay, Harold. Yeah, Bloom. I know. I know yeah, I'm a real Harold Bloom over here. Um, I remember his voice is it's very low. It's, his voice is kind of soothing, actually, Harold Bloom. But, you uh, reminds me of like Marlon Brando. Yeah, of. yeah, it's very low. Yeah, like, like I'm not gonna try and do, you know I'm I'm gonna respect his memory. Um, yeah, so I'll also give it four bright red Pennywise clown noses. I I like that it exists. I I think it's just. It's a very fascinating anomaly in, in the Stephen King canon, and uh, everyone should check it out. It's a short read, and then you get you get hours and maybe years of enjoyment from the uh, from the photos themselves. Keep it on your coffee table; it makes a makes a great conversation starter. It's a spooky coffee table book, <laughs> yeah. great conversation starter. Yeah. Um. Okay. Well, that's uh. Thanks for joining us for this little bit of an unusual episode. Um. We would love to see some pictures of gargoyles near you, uh, or maybe some of your favorites from the book. So hit us up at the Twitter and the Losers Club Pod at Instagram at the Losers Club Podcast. Uh, let us know if your town is haunted by these silent observers. Dan, where can we uh, find you? Uh, you can find me, as always, DW Caffrey on both Twitter and Instagram, or check out my website, dancaffreywrites.com. Where can we find you? Uh, Dan Flieger, of course, most social handles. Uh, nothing too exciting going on, but I do post some funny photos sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, and you can check out some more Losers Club uh, podcast. Um, on the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. We have some really cool stuff coming up uh, as we segue into the summer, including some surprises, so keep your eyes out. Yeah, and maybe maybe some recording in the same room again at some point. We'll see. Now Ooh, that I look forward things, to so. it. Very yeah. spooky. But uh, until then, I guess all we have to say is long, long days and pleasant, pleasant nights. Night. That's easier with two people. All right, see you next Bye-bye. time. Bye. I got some hot friends. This is the end of our show. For now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs>